You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at raising or lowering the voting age. What's the better fit for a democracy? Also, employee loyalty, dedication, and initiative, once seen as a benefit, but employees are lately pushing back against that. What can companies do to win their most loyal workers back? And we answer the classic question, paper or plastic? Which one is more environmentally sustainable? Turns out there's no easy answer. But first, the choices made by the Federal Open Market Committee in the next few years will determine if we get inflation under control, how fast the economy grows, and what happens in financial markets. The most recent nominee to the Fed's Board of Governors, Adrienne Kugler, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, made that announcement. Dr. Kugler is a highly qualified and respected economist with deep expertise in labor markets, worker mobility, and youth unemployment. These nominees understand that this job is not a partisan one, but one that plays a critical role in pursuing maximum employment, maintaining price stability, and supervising many of our nation's financial institutions. But there are concerns that while Kugler is a great labor economist, what the country needs is someone with financial macro expertise. For more on this, we bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist Allison Schrager. Allison, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with us. Um, just based on the column that you have on the Bloomberg Terminal, is monetary policy at a critical point now? I think so. I mean, we're coming off of what we called to some the great moderation, where we had very low inflation um, and low interest rates, and everyone thought this would last forever. And everyone thought, well, you know, we we figured out monetary policy that if you set an intention, which we call an inflation target, mm -hmm. it would be realized. And you know, the biggest challenge was interest rates were too low. But now it turns out that maybe inflation targeting doesn't work as well as we thought. Not only that, forward guidance, which has become the most powerful tool of you tell markets what you're going to do and then you do it, might actually not work that well either. So I think in, in a lot of ways, monetary policy is at a very critical point. And maybe we have to rethink the tools we're using. And, uh, you know, it also brings up a lot of financial stability risks moving from a low to a high rate environment. It takes really sort of thinking very carefully about how you're navigating monetary policy. And also to add it all up, add on, we've also really changed the tools of monetary policy. People, the main policy rate used to be the Fed funds rate, which was the rate banks used to lend to each other at. Now that uh, starting in since the great financial crisis, we pay interest rate on reserves instead, which also just changes to some degree the mechanism of how monetary policy works. And there's also, of course, QE, which is an enormous um, sort of balance sheet the Fed also has to manage. So as I said, I really think we're at this critical point where we might be in a new regime of monetary policy and an intellectual regime about how we think about it. OK, so what does the Fed need? I think it needs someone who really understands these challenges. And, you know, they're, you know, I think we tend to think about economists being all the same, but they have very distinct specialties. And uh, if you're thinking about what the Fed is trying to do, it's trying to sort of steer and guide the macro economy by working 
through financial markets. You know, financial markets are the one that sort of carry out all these things. They raise interest rates, that changes credit conditions, and that feeds through the macro economy. So you have this huge financial markets, you know, apparatus, which actually has to carry out and implement all these policies. So I think what we really need then, uh, and this is a very sort of distinct specialty, is economists who specialize in macro finance, which is the macro economy and how that interacts with financial markets. Now, as as you explained in your column, and as you said just now, there is a range of uh, specialties on the Fed board. And it seems like that would be a good thing, that you'd have that diversity and you'd have all those different brains working together for that common goal. Not necessarily? No, I think we should have that diversity. The problem is we don't have anyone who does the macro finance stuff. I mean, or, I mean to some degree, we have... Uh, um, we have one, but you know he did all, most of that work within the Fed. And what you really need is you an outsider who's really actually a great scholar in this area to sort of lead them intellectually. And traditionally, at least since the 80s, we've always had that, or to some degree had that presence from the New York Fed president, who always gets a seat on the FOMC. Um, and right now, I mean, we have someone more traditional macroeconomist who doesn't really work in financial markets. So we really are lacking the financial expertise on the board right now. And uh, the latest um, uh, Fed pick really is more labor. We already kind of have that with Lisa Cook. So I think we don't, you know, labor is useful too. That is part of the Fed dual mandate. But to some degree, if I had to choose, I would choose the financial expertise more because that's actually how it all works. The labor market is the downstream of what happens in financial markets. Let's dig down a little bit deeper and talk about what that does bring to the table, what it is that it would add to their decision process. Yeah. So when you're deciding whether or not we're going to raise or lower rates or, you know, quantitative tightening or move back to quantitative easing, which, you know, as you know, whatever it is, it, it's very clear we're moving into sort of some serious financial stability concerns. If you really understand how Fed policy interacts with financial markets, you can know, OK, these these are the unintended consequences that could happen. This is if we raise rates, this could happen to financial markets. This is what um, could happen to the housing market. You know, all these things that could happen to smaller regional banks. You have that appreciation. And then later, as I said, those conditions are what affect labor markets. So it's one thing just to be like, oh, wow, we're really concerned about labor markets and, you know, how this affects sort of, you know, this part of the labor market versus that part of the labor market. But honestly, that's sort of a second order concern of how it impacts the financial markets first. Better uh, macro view then than the granular view you're getting from all the different opinions. Exactly. We are talking with Allison Traeger, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering economics. Allison, what do you want to see from the Fed? Um, I would like to see, as I said, some acknowledgement. Honestly, they also have made a lot of policy errors in the last couple of years. And I mean, I don't blame them entirely because they were following largely what had become the sort of intellectual tradition, which was the thing about forward guidance, just thinking about low rates were the biggest problem. So I think it would be really good to have a real intellectual leader who understands macro financial challenges on the Fed to really sort of be able to also take a hard look at mistakes that were made and think, do we need to really rethink our communication strategy and how we um, you know, are thinking going forward and communicate? The Fed is facing some tremendous challenges. Let's go through some of them, if we could, because in your column, you sort of itemized them, and you talked about how they're unprecedented. This is an unusual time. Well, it's been an unusual couple of years for all of us, let's face it, but this is a really unusual time for the Fed. 
It is. I mean, there's been other unusual times, but I mean, these are the times you look back on if you're a monetary historian and you're like, wow, this is really sparks a new regime in how we do monetary policy. I would say, you know, Volcker was another time where it was really like a big change. And you think about how you think about credibility, how you think of the role of the Fed, the markets. And I think now that we that sort of era is broken with higher inflation and with rising rates, we sort of need a new regime, not only in the policy that's done, but also an in intellectual philosophy. Do you mean regime not only in how they think and their policy and their philosophy, but also in their leadership? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying we need to get rid of Jay Powell. But, <laughs> I just um, wanted to clarify that. But I do think, say, having one, at least one person who has a lot of expertise in macro finance and sort of a long history of, of intellectual leadership and scholarship in this area, I just say, let's have one of those people around on the board. We don't have to change everyone. Let's just add one. What does the Fed need to do now? And then what should they be doing in the next few years? Let's take the, the short look at it and then let's go for the long ball. Well, I mean, I said, it's, they face a lot of trade-offs right now. I mean, my inclination would be they really need to get inflation under control because if they do not, we could end up in an era like the 70s where we just have inflation coming in and coming back, coming in, coming back. And that uncertainty can be very damaging and it can be very hard for, for the Fed to eventually get rid of it all together. We might, it would be it's just very costly like Volcker had to do. I'd like to hope that we avoid that and stay strong and get inflation back to sort of, I don't know if they're going back to target, but at least 3%. And that could be a lot of work. And that could also start to really start to harm the economy, might increase in uh, unemployment, which will create all sorts of new political pressures. They're already under political pressure and unemployment is only three and a half percent or three point four percent. So I think in the short term, they have to do that. But over the next couple of years, as I said, they're, they're going to have to balance problems in the labor market, especially potentially problems in financial markets. As I said, because monetary policy goes through financial markets, financial stability concerns are often, um, you know, sort of always lurking in the background. So they're going to have a very tough balancing act for the next couple of years going forward if they're really serious about bringing inflation down. Is there anything in particular that you are watching for um, geopolitical type incidents that may impact what the Fed decides to do? Or are you just mainly watching for the milestone markers from the Fed? I think that the big thing to watch is commercial real estate. You know, as a lot of those loans come due and they have to refinance at a higher rate, there could be a lot of problems there that trickle through the financial markets and make their job a lot harder. And raising rates further will maybe cause even more damage. And yet they'll still have high inflation to deal with. And then they'll be in a really tough spot. Allison Schrager is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering economics. Coming up, we'll look at the talk about raising the voting age. Bloomberg's Jonathan Bernstein says that's a terrible idea. The question is, why do we have voting in the first place? And all the reasons that, you know, and, and, and which sort of raises the question why do we have democracy in the first place. And if you think through it, all of the reasons that we have voting and that we have democracy really point to having not a higher voting age, but a lower voting age. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. 
The election cycle seems to get shorter every year. More hats being thrown into the ring, especially on the Republican side now, where there are already a stable of candidates ready to vie for the nomination for president. The election is more than a year and a half away. In a video on his Twitter page, long-shot Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is proposing to raise the voting age from 18 to 25 with some exceptions. One of the things that we don't do a good enough job of in this country is teaching the next generation what the Constitution actually says. You're right. Okay. So one of the things I favor, this is, this is controversial to some people, if you want to be 18 years old, graduate from high school, and cast a ballot in this country at a young age, you better at least pass the civics portion of the test that immigrants have to pass. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein says that is not a good idea by any measure. And Jonathan joins us now. Thanks for taking the time with us, Jonathan. Why is he wrong? Well, you know, the, the, the question is, why do we have voting in the first place? And all the reasons that, you know, wh- and, and, and which sort of raises the question, why do we have democracy in the first place? And if you think through it, all of the reasons that we have voting and that we have democracy really point to having not a higher voting age, but a lower voting age. So he's he's thinking in exactly the wrong direction. So would it make it harder for people to vote then? You would be making a smaller pool of voters? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the questions is, what's the goal here? And if the goal of democracy is self-government, well, that includes all of us, right? So if, if part of the goal is to... Um, you know, represent everyone's interests in a democracy. Well, you know, he's he's trying to find, well, who are the people who are qualified to vote, who are going to be the good voters? And we, that's the wrong way of thinking about democracy. The way of thinking about it, if you're thinking about sort of politics about who gets what and dividing up stuff, right, is that everybody has interests. In fact, the truth is that if you really are sort of a strict Lockean, you know, if you go back to political philosophy, um, uh, Democrat, the, the idea that you want a liberal democracy with everybody's interests getting represented. The truth is what we really should have, if you think in that sense, is vote from birth with parents taking care of the vote until kids are old enough to vote for themselves, because everybody has interests, including the, the very youngest. Okay, so just so I understand what you're saying, there's that theory that to get the best out of democracy, voting should be restricted to just the best of us, and in that way, they would have to raise the voting age to the older, more mature, they've been seasoned, they've seen some things kind of voter. But that, you say, would be a false premise, because then not everybody would be represented. Right, well, if you if your goal in democracy, is, if your goal is somehow to have um, the best people voting, the problem with that is it's really a slippery slope because, well, restricting is 25 is one thing, but it turns out that lots of people who are over 25 don't know anything about public affairs, don't pay attention, um, so maybe they shouldn't vote either. And then if you have, you know, if you call that, then you're going to have another call after that for the people who really pay attention and really are the best voters in somebody's conception. But that sort of raises a bunch of questions, including who's going to be the one who makes that decision of who's, you know, and and it raises the question of why do you have democracy in the first place? Because if if your goal is to get the, the best people deciding, well, democracy may not be the right way to go then, because there's no particular reason that you need the democracy to, you know, that 
democracy will yield the best decision. What it's very good for doing is yielding the decisions that everybody participates in. Do you find this is a partisan tendency? Well, if you want to sort of look at it in practical political terms right now, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's one of the things that's been going on in our politics in the last several years is Republicans dealing with electoral losses. And don't forget, Republicans have lost um, the popular vote for president every time except for one beginning in 1992. Uh, and the way that they've dealt with that is not um, by trying to find ideas that appeal to more people or trying to find new people who will support them, but um, to try to restrict the franchise by making it more difficult to vote. So, yeah, this would make it impossible to vote for for many people because they would no longer be qualified. Right now, young people vote uh, for Democrats more than they vote for Republicans. That hasn't always been true, by the way. It's not like an automatic thing. But this is the kind of sort of short-term, hey, these people oppose us, let's keep them from voting um, thing that's, that's very popular, uh, unfortunately, among a lot of Republicans. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein about the question of lowering the voting age. Jonathan, what would the benefit of lowering the voting age be besides increasing that voting pool? Well, you know, like I said, one of the things is that sort of just in a theoretical sense, um, young people, teenagers, even even younger than that, have interests and should be represented in the democracy, if you think of it that way. Um, but there's also a question about the particular voting age that we have at, at 18. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that it probably is, in practical terms, a lousy uh, idea because people who are 18 years old uh, are often in a life transition. They get out of high school. Um, many of them move to a new jurisdiction, even within a city. If they move out of their parents' house across town and, and you know get a job and all that, they may have a different member of the city council. Uh, if if across town means across the city border, they may have a new mayor. They may even vote on different things. Um, some some of them might go away to college, and that's you know sets up another thing where they're living someplace that's not permanent. And they the the moment when they need to get the habit of voting is a more disruptive life thing for the time for them. So bringing it to a lower age of, of 16, say, or even a little lower than that, would allow them to get that habit of voting started. Because it turns out voting is a habitual thing. If you start voting, you're more likely to keep voting. So it would, it would mean that people would start voting at a time where they had a little more stability in their lives and perhaps would get into the habit earlier. Is there a way to determine what the best age would be to vote, that younger would be better than older, to, to develop those habits? Yeah, I don't think that there's a, a particular, you know, hard and fast rule. Uh, if you think of, demo- of democracy in a different way, if you think of it in terms of not so much of politics as who gets what, but politics is a way for people to um, meaningfully control their own fate collectively with other people, um, that's lost on somebody who's three years old or five years old. Sure. But you can start getting it as as young as young teenagers. And, you know, if it were up to me, if I could wave a magic wand, ain't going to happen, but I would probably set it around 13 or 14 because that's when people can start getting the understanding of it. And the truth is, you know, if you look around at interest groups, at campaigns, 
there's plenty of teenagers who get involved at those ages, and nobody says you shouldn't be allowed to participate in politics when you're 12 or 13 or 14. You shouldn't be allowed to, you know, go door to door or stuff envelopes or write a letter to your member of Congress or something like that. It's voting that that is the sticking point, and the truth is, voting is sort of the training wheels part of democracy if you think of it that way. It's the the gateway to more meaningful involvement. And so I would let people, I would I would start with, you know, young teenagers and let them get used to the idea of being personally involved in politics themselves. And then as they got older, they might be able to add more, you know, um, more involvement in their community, more involvement in self-government. Jonathan Bernstein is a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering politics and policy. Coming up, what has stymied employee initiative and how can that initiative be reignited? Don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. For years, many of us have operated with the understanding that deep employee commitment is a benefit. An employee who takes initiative is seen as a favorable trade by employers. And most highly valued workers were happy to oblige. But things have changed since the pandemic. Let's take a look with Bloomberg Opinion editor Sarah Green Carmichael. How have we seen employees push back? I think we've seen employees push back in a number of ways that at first may not seem all related to the same cause, but I think they are. So for example, over the last couple of years, we really have seen a rise in employee activism, employees protesting certain uh, corporate policies or political stances, or advocating for their employers to take a stronger political stand. We have also seen employees agitating for higher wages or more benefits. Um, And we've also seen employees saying, in some cases, you know, I I'm happy with this job, but I don't want to work these weekends and evenings anymore, you know, when I'm working, you know, 40 or 50 hours during the week already. So I think all of those kind of seem like disparate trends, but in my opinion, they all are linked to a reevaluation by committed employees of what work is really about. Have you seen that lead then to a pushback from CEOs? I mean, the upper echelons of the office. Yes, I I think CEOs are a little taken aback. Um, In some cases, I think CEOs, especially who tried to really lead in a humane way during the pandemic, feel like, where's the gratitude? Like, I, you know, really worked hard to avoid layoffs. I try to pay a fair wage and make this a great company. And like, why don't you just say thank you? Why are you trying (laughs) to unionize? Why are you pushing me? Um, and 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 so I think in some cases, you know, we see like the, you know, Howard Schultz, for example, the, um, you know, who's such an influential leader for many years at Starbucks, really seems to take it as a, a personal affront that those workers want to unionize. And I think he's not alone in, in sort of having a little bit of, of sort of a startled feeling like, wait a minute, this is a great company. 
And I think that in other ways, we've seen uh, CEOs push back by saying employees have to come back to the office more frequently than maybe employees would want to. So that's like another sort of thing that I think a lot of workplaces are dealing with right now. And I wonder where that puts middle managers literally caught in the middle. Do you see them siding with one side or the other? Are they having to walk this tightrope? Do they feel that sort of empathy with the workers because they're kind of worker bees too in the middle? It's such a hard time to be a middle manager. The way I think of it is, you know, if you're driving a car, you are in the mindset of a driver. And if you are a pedestrian, you are in the mindset of a pedestrian. And I think we can all think of times, you know, when as a driver, we think, God, these people are just walking in the middle of the road. And then as a pedestrian, you think, ah, that car came out of nowhere. And middle managers are constantly toggling between two very different perspectives, sort of like that. So yes, they are employees and they are trying to, you know, do what their own bosses want. And then at the same time, they have to then turn right around and maybe push some of their their own direct reports to, to do things that maybe they don't even believe in. So I think it's an incredibly difficult time to be juggling these two roles um, that sort of cohabit in the same person of a middle manager. So what does this then do to the workplace dynamic as a whole? I think that the workplace dynamic is playing out um in different companies in different ways. I think it's a time of tension. I think it's a time of reevaluating. I think one of the things that makes it challenging is that a lot of the um, conversations that we're having, you know, maybe at home with our partners about work and the nature of work, we're not having in the office because it feels, it can feel alarming and unacceptable. And like you are risking your livelihood to go to your boss and say, like, I'm having some thoughts about the role work plays in my life. Like that's not, you know, something that's really welcomed in most workplaces. So I think that there's a lot of these tensions running, some cases under the surface. And in other cases, they are spilling out into the open as we're seeing with some of these strikes and pickets and protests. Is that what's driving this, the pandemic? Is this where it all sort of bubbled to the surface? Or have we seen uh, hints of this even back in 2019? Yes, I think we've been seeing it coming to the fore for a long time. And I think there's a few different reasons why it's culminating now. Um, one is just an increase in political polarization in our society. You know, if everything is political now, you know, so is the workplace. Um, but I think the in some ways, the pandemic did bring things to the fore. It forced a reevaluation of, of work in people's lives. The other thing that I think often goes without saying, but needs to go with saying, mm -hmm. is that the pandemic saw a tremendous loss of life and a tremendous amount of suffering and you know people being hospitalized. If you look at um, surveys, by the end of the Omicron wave, 80% of Americans knew someone personally who had been hospitalized or had died from COVID. That is a lot of brushes with death. And that really, I think, changes how people, you know, think about what they do with the bulk of their time, which is work. It changes your attitude automatically when you are faced with a crisis, whether it's a health crisis or otherwise. And it puts a different perspective on how important work is. Of course, it's important. You need the health care. You need the benefits. You need, to, you need to pay rent. But at the same time, there's got to be a balance there. And it sounds almost like the, the balance is shifting. I think the balance is shifting a little bit. And it's a little bit, I think, you know, there's an, the old joke about a fish. You ask a fish, how's the water? And the fish says, what's water? Right. Um, and I, I think a lot of younger workers especially have grown up in this time where the, the primary way that employees are managed and motivated 
is by saying like, this work is so meaningful. You can bring your whole self to work. You can feel passion for what you do. You should feel passion. You should act like an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur. You know, there's all this idea of like building an ownership culture and having this really engaged workforce. And that can be a good thing. It feels good to, in many cases, be that deeply committed to your job. But I think there's a little bit of a reevaluation now of some employees saying, wait a minute, Am I actually being paid enough for all of the effort I'm putting in? Is it okay that I am devoting so much of myself to work and leaving so little in some cases for family or friends or community? Um, and and I think there's a little bit of a sense now from bosses about being like, wait a minute, why do all these employees have so many opinions on, on how we do things around here? It's like, well, you told them to think like owners. Right. <laughs> owners have opinions. Do you find that money's the primary motivator? I remember before the pandemic, there was all of this talk about the three-day weekend, you know, a four-day work week. Ooh. And then the pandemic just threw the chessboard out the window and gave everybody just the work from home opportunity. And now the four day week, the three day weekend, while they don't seem to be talking about it as much, is still right there. You know, the the possibility of changing how the work week is broken down. And, and I asked this just to figure out what the motivation is at this point. Is it money? Is it time off? Is it benefits? Is it uh, a more responsibility? What's the big primary motivator? I mean, it probably depends on who you ask, right? Human beings are incredibly diverse. I find the four-day week very interesting, especially because it is still a big conversation happening in Europe where mm-hmm. there's a lot of experimentation going on. As someone who writes a lot and thinks a lot about workplace issues, I guess what I'd like to see now is just more experimentation because there are going to be some people motivated by money. There are going to be some people motivated by benefits. There's one of the biggest benefits, you know, employees can get is flex time. And that doesn't really cost companies anything. Um, So I, I would love to see the experimentation on how work gets done that we saw of necessity during the COVID pandemic continue. Um, I think that there there could be more experimentation around a four-day week or around shifts in hours. You know, one of the people I interviewed recently um, was the CEO of uh, Motherly, which is a, a publication for mothers that also gathers a lot of data on mothers. And she said their workday is organized around this idea of core hours, that between 10 and 4, for example, people are online. But when you put in the other you know, hours is up to you. So you could put it in in the morning before your kids are awake or, you know, maybe after they go to bed. And I I like to see companies doing that kind of experimenting because this whole idea of like a solid, you know, nine to five or eight to six block of time where you just don't stand up from your computer just seems unrealistic, especially given that so many of those workers are doing email and work on evenings and weekends also. And especially since so many of those workers showed that it can be done another way, as you said, out of necessity during the pandemic. Exactly. And I think to me, what would be sad is if we just tried to go back to, quote unquote, how things were before, which was a paradigm that didn't work for a lot of people. To me, it's almost like, like, what if we had an amazing workplace experimentation and then just forgot about it? <laughs> you know, uh, let's not forget about it. Let's take these lessons and and keep going. Let's use it to inf- inform how we work going forward. Sarah Green Carmichael is a Bloomberg Opinion editor. And if you're of a certain age, you've been asked the classic question, paper or plastic, usually a question about how you'd like to have your groceries bagged or how you'd like to pay for those groceries. And usually the environmentally conscious would say paper, because paper is so much more sustainable than plastic. 
At least that's the conventional wisdom. Bloomberg opinion columnist Adam Minter joins us now to talk about it. Okay, Adam, set us straight. Paper, more natural, right? Like plastic, it's an industrial product as well. It's made in paper mills. And if you've ever spent any time or driven past or, or inhaled the air around a paper mill, you'll know that it's not necessarily a natural process. There's a lot of chemicals, a lot of energy, a lot of water taken in. So no, it's not a natural product. Um, it's a product made from natural materials, in a sense, just as plastic is. Then what's the difference between being sustainable and being natural? Is there a lot of room there? There is a lot of room there. And, and one of the problems I think we have in talking about these materials is we haven't done a very good job of defining what sustainable in particular means, because for different communities, it means different things. For example, uh, lately, when we talk about plastic, sustainability has to do with end of life where it gets tossed. But that's not the only basis upon which we think about sustainability. Increasingly, we think about sustainability in terms of greenhouse gases and what kind of carbon emissions are associated with a product or packaging. And in many cases, you will actually find that there are less carbon emissions associated with the manufacture and transport of plastic products than of paper products for a lot of reasons. Let's talk about the packaging because, you know, we've all seen the unbleached brown paper packaging. It looks more organic. It looks right. healthier, and I'm using little air bunny quotes here. So it looks like it would be better for the environment. We would think it would be, is it? Not always. I mean, for example, uh, uh, you know, it can be heavier. And, you know, we think, well, why should we care about heavier packaging? Well, yeah. um, when you're a consumer goods manufacturer and you're transporting millions of packages of something, weight really adds up. And again, it becomes an issue of fuel. It becomes an issue of how much fuel maybe goes into manufacturing that product in addition to transporting it. So you have to think in terms of the total life cycle of that packaging or that product. And it's not just packaging. I mean, I think we tend to think in terms of packaging and sustainability. But there are other objects that we use in our daily life where we can actually say uh, from a climate perspective, um, uh, uh, plastic is better. One is furniture. Um, there's huh. been recent study from McKinsey, and I've just got the, uh, the data. I'm looking at it right here. Uh, uh, an equal piece of furniture made from polypropylene plastic. We all know what, uh, uh, you know, sort of our back porch furniture looks like sure. um, versus uh, the same piece of furniture made from wood. You're actually going to have a 50% uh, greenhouse gas savings on the polypropylene uh, piece of furniture. It's lighter weight. Um, you know, it doesn't, uh, it's not, uh, when you, you know, wood furniture, you cut down a tree, you no longer have the ability to suck in the carbon, uh, that a tree fulfills. So you, you know, these are very hard decisions and it makes definitions of sustainability very difficult too. So it sounds as though paper may not be the environmentally friendly alternative that we thought it was, but also maybe plastic isn't the nasty enemy with the fangs and the teeth that we've come to believe it is. Exactly. And and again, I'm, I'm certainly not here to apologize for the problems. Sure, of sure. I mean, we, we all know what they are. But I think, you know, when we talk about materials and the materials, the industrial materials that we use in our daily life, I think we really need to be uh, more nuanced in how we look at these things. There are different ways of evaluating sustainability. And I don't think we're serving consumers in particular well by creating a pariah material, which is what we've you know classified all plastics, considering them evil in some ways. I think there's more nuance to that. And I think if we're going to achieve sustainability, 
we're going to have to have that more nuanced look at these various products. Adam Minter is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering technology and the environment. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.